Welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. Today, we welcome Professor Susan Samuelson. Professor Samuelson graduated from Harvard Law School in 1977 and went immediately into Big Farm Law, where she was progressing well. After having her first two children, however, the relentless schedule of corporate law transactions combined with the new demands of family life forced a reckoning for this high achiever. She left having no idea what was going to come next. Listen to how a chance encounter sparked a years-long journey into the teaching side of academia, first tiptoeing in through adjunct courses and ending as one of the top-rated tenured professors at Boston University. We will hear about Susan's fascinating career path firsthand. Susan, welcome to 321 iRelaunch. Oh, thank you. So like in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. You graduated from law school and started at a prominent Boston law firm. What were your career goals at the time and how did things evolve once you were there for a few years? Looking back, when I applied to law school, I said in my essay that I wanted to teach law. But to teach at a law school, you pretty much have to make law review, which means being in the top 5% of your class, and I was not. And at law school then, and particularly at Harvard, the whole focus was on going to a big firm. That's how the career center was set up. That was the easy choice. Mm -hmm. And that became my goal, too. And I assumed I would go to a firm, I would make partner, I would have children, maybe I would work part-time for a few years. And honestly, no one in my family had ever been a lawyer, so I really had no idea how the whole thing worked. So, Susan, can you elaborate just a little more about once you were in the law firm, how did things unfold for those uh, first few years? I actually love my life at the law firm in many ways. I was in the corporate area, which in those days was very unusual for women, but I had some great mentors, men, who were very supportive and encouraged me to do it. I had been in economics majors and undergraduate. I liked, found business interesting. So I, I actually really enjoyed it. But while I was there, I ended up having two children. And I took some time off with each one, you know, some months. And then for a while, I worked part-time. So I had been at the firm six years, but I had credit for four years towards partnership. When I came back after the birth of my second child, one of the partners, who was a real mentor to me, said to me, don't work part-time. Come back and be the lawyer you want to be and then see what it takes to be that lawyer and decide whether it's worth it to you. Mm. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. Interesting advice and really forward thinking and great mentoring. I, I, ha I have to comment on that. So how did you make the decision to leave and how did that feel given that you had made no future plans or maybe you had, maybe, can you take us inside that decision process a little bit? Uh, sure. I am definitely a planner. I'm the person who bought my cemetery plot when I was in graduate school. Um, but shockingly, this time, I had no plans. And two things happened. First of all, I had taken the partner's advice, and I was the best lawyer I could be, which in many ways was a good feeling. Mm -hmm. 
But I was doing a lot of securities work, which involved travel. And I had a daughter who was a year old, and I just wasn't seeing her very much. And I had been looking so forward to President's Day weekend to have a long weekend at home with my children. And I had built that up in my mind as being a big deal, like those three days were going to make up for the prior year. Mm. But in the end, I had to go to Natchez, Mississippi for the weekend to work on a deal. Mm. And when I got home from that weekend, I felt like my daughter really was not that enthusiastic to see me. She acted like she vaguely knew who I was. Mm. And that that was very sad for me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the partner who was my mentor, who had given me good advice, said to me, if you want to be a partner, you can't have any more children. You already have a boy and a girl. And if you have more children, people will think you're not committed to the practice of law. And let's be clear, he had four children himself. Uh Uh And my husband and I had always thought we wanted to have three children. And, you know, at the time, I was just really grateful to this guy for having said it. I didn't, it wasn't what I wanted to hear, but if it was true, it was important for me to hear it. So that combination of events where I felt like I really wasn't managing two children very well, I couldn't have a third child. I thought about it a bit. And then that April, I told the firm that I was leaving. Mm. And the people were great. Uh, That mentor partner said to me, go home, raise your children, come back in five years or 10 years or 15 years, you know, take the time you need. There'll be a place for you here if you want to come back. I, I never had a farewell luncheon because the idea was that I was going to come back. Mm-hmm. And I should also just point out, there was a substantial financial issue here too. I was earning at least half the family income. And we had some savings And we cut back on our expenses, and we figured it wouldn't be that long. But looking back on it, it was a big decision to make, really, in a short period of time. Yes. Can you tell us what years these were, approximately? Uh, So I left the firm in 1983. Mm. Wow. So these conversations about how you shouldn't have any more children, I mean, really pretty astounding when you you think about it um, in terms of uh, what you what the discussions are today? Uh, so this was in the early '80s that that was. Going on. Yeah, you know, though I think today people might still think the same thing; they just mm-hmm. wouldn't say it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so you make this decision. You're leaving. You're a big planner, but you don't have plans for what happens next. So what happens next? Well, I did promise the firm that I would finish off the deals that I had been working on. That was probably a mistake looking back on it. Um, So it got to be August and I was still just working as hard as ever. And my husband and I went out for dinner one night with one of his friends who taught at BU. And this friend said to me, so what are you going to put on your resume for this period when you're not working? Mm. And I just laughed and said, amnesia. (laughs) Um, At that point, I was just worn out and I wanted a rest. I didn't know what I was going to do. And he said, well, you know, the School of Management is looking for someone to teach business law starting in two weeks. So I, of course, that's what I knew I had always kind of wanted to do. And although 
I wasn't necessarily in a place where I wanted to take on a new challenge. It just seemed too good to pass up. So I called the guy who was in charge of hiring this person, and he was the person who was teaching all the law courses at that point. He was the retired general counsel from the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. And it was pretty funny because at law firms, they always take you out to some grand meal someplace. <laughs> this guy took me across the street to a room that had vending machines. <laughs> and I bought my own sandwich and we sat there and maybe had a half an hour conversation. My impression was he didn't have a lot of other options at that point. Uh, I had never taught before. He never asked me about teaching. He just told me the pay was $2,000 per section and I would be teaching two sections each semester. Two weeks later, I was standing outside a classroom door thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? Wow. That is really something. First of all, I just want to say for our listening audience, uh, because Susan and I are both in Boston, BU is Boston University. Most people probably know, but just wanted to point that out. Uh, so this, there was hardly a break there be, be, between winding down what you were doing at the law firm and starting this brand new like teaching role. Like, how did you even start like was, were there course materials like, like what happened well larry the guy who had hired me gave me a copy of the textbook that that he had used when he taught the course and that was it uh so i threw together a syllabus and then over the course of semester i would read a few days ahead just to be ahead of the students but i had to reteach myself a lot of law because i was a corporate lawyer i didn't remember torts or constitutional law or a lot of other law school topics. But at the end of the semester, I had the highest teaching ratings at the school. I had a 4.94 out of five from the class. Wow, that, that must have felt really good. Uh, and I, I guess w one question I have about what your life was like while this was happening, if you're teaching two courses a semester, you've never taught before you i'm guessing are almost creating the curriculum as you're going because you hardly had any advance notice to plan the course uh and what is the time commitment for doing that and how were you managing that at home was it like night and day because you could control it and, and was that part of it really good well we still had child care from when i was practicing law we hadn't made any decision about ending that mm. so my life was just so much easier. I mean, I was working hard and stressed out and concerned about it, but compared with practicing law. And again, when you're teaching, classes meet at a certain time. And when I prepared was completely uh, at my own discretion. Mm -hmm. So it was night and day, so much easier. Yeah, so right there, the control factor. So you yes. had a lot of control. You knew the, the courses were always at the same time. It wasn't, you know, a ch transactional and corporate law. Things are happening in a time frame that you have usually very little control over. So you had a lot of control. You knew in the courses where you could control when you prepped for them. So yes. I mean, there is a flip side to it, which is that it seems like my children only got sick on mornings when I had to teach. Oh, no. um, as children are want to do, uh, but it was it was a much easier life mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so you know it's it's pretty interesting because one of the things that we talk about at our relaunch 
uh, when people are on career break as a way to tiptoe back into their field is to consider teaching one course or two courses as an adjunct uh, in a, a directly or tangentially related area. Uh, and it almost operates like an internship does in a sense, because typically these adjunct roles are renewed on a semester by semester basis. And as you're saying, you have a lot of control. They're, they're very discrete pieces of work. So you rolled right into that directly from um, what you were doing before. How long did you maintain this uh, two courses a semester schedule? Uh, and was that something that you were thinking, well, I know you hadn't planned it, but that you were thinking about, well, this is intellectually, this is interesting to me and I have a lot of control and I can kind of see myself doing this for a, I don't know how, how long a period of time. Was that, was it any of that going through your mind while all, while all of this transition was happening? Essentially, I love teaching. I really, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And so I was just really doing it year to year. At the end of the first year, I went and asked for a raise. So I got an enormous raise from $2,000 to $2,500 a course. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the second year uh, of teaching, I asked for a full-time non-tenure track position which they agreed to, and that got, got me a raise to $20,000. Mm -hmm. um, and then after doing that for a year, I decided to ask if I could go on tenure track. I had at that point been teaching three years. I was still getting top teaching evaluations. I was always in the top five in the school. And students are generally harder on women faculty than on men. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Typically, I was the only woman in, there weren't that many women faculty anyway, but typically I was always in the top five and the only woman there. So I went to talk with my department chair and said, how about my going tenure track? And he warned me that it's an up and out system. If I went for tenure and didn't get it, I'd have to leave. And, and that was daunting. It was something I loved doing and I wasn't getting any younger. And, and, and the other issue is, to get tenure, you have to do research. And PhD students learn how to do research. But I had no training in research methods at all. And no one in the school had ever gotten tenure in the law area. So there was no path at all. It wasn't clear how to do that. For example, no one knew, should I publish in business journals? Should I publish in law journals? And the problem with law journals is that they are run by students who tend to prefer law school faculty over lawyers who are teaching at different kinds of schools. Mm. And then the process of tenure itself is very difficult. You spend six years doing the research and then the review process takes an entire year. And it starts with a university sending out uh, letters asking people to review your case, to review your research. Then your case is reviewed and voted on by the department, by the school's tenure faculty, by the school's tenure committee, by the school's dean, by the university's tenure committee, and then the university provost ultimately makes a decision. So it's a totally miserable year where practically every month someone's voting on you. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I was willing to take the risk for one major reason. I'd always been a good student and I looked around me and I thought, I'm as able as many of my colleagues. And if you're not tenured at a university, you're a second class citizen. And I didn't want to spend my life being a second class citizen. You're just never treated with quite the level of respect as if you're tenured. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I still don't know why the school agreed to let me go on tenure track, but it did. And the complication was at this point, my husband and I still wanted to have that third child. So I went to talk to my department chair yet again, and I said, what's the maternity leave policy? And he looked at me very surprised <laughs> and said, have your children in the summer, duh. <laughs> um, no. So I, I tried that. Uh, and I didn't get pregnant on the right schedule the first time, but I did the second year. <laughs> and that's why my youngest son is four years younger than his sister rather than three years. But very conveniently, he was born the day after the last class of my spring semester that year. Ah, very good planning, Susan. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and then a few years later, a maternity leave policy was actually established for the school. Mm -hmm. And I went and asked if I could then have my maternity leave when the child was about three years old. And they agreed to give me some time off. And that was really helpful in getting tenure because it gave me a chance to really focus on my research and get things published in time. So, so it actually worked out well. So you used your maternity leave to actually uh, do work toward your tenure. Yes. And there is actually a lot of research that that's what male faculty do. Yes. Um, I so, something about that. Yeah. So that's what I did. Yeah. You, you were ahead of your time setting the precedent for uh, yes. male and female faculty. Uh, you know, I remember um, when I was a almost third year associate at the investment bank that I was working for and I was pregnant and I was pregnant. There was someone who was vice president and someone who was a managing director. We were the first pregnant professional women in our investment bank. They had never had to deal with it before. And hmm. they didn't have a maternity leave policy and they told us to write it. They're like, you guys figure it out and come back to us. So and huh. that was in the mid eighties. Yeah. Different times. Wow. Well, I tried, I prefer to take the view that I didn't want anyone to notice. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, Susan, at what point were you in a position to build the law department? And can you talk about who you hired and why? And what did they end up doing longer term? Well, it, so it's not like there was any official handoff to me. I just started doing more of the administrative work. And in my life, I found that if you were willing to do the work, mostly people will let you. Mm. For example, at our local tennis club, I asked to be in charge of having a new climbing structure installed. And next thing you know, I was only the second woman ever to be president and I was <laughs> undertaking a million dollar renovation. So was, there you go. <laughs> yes. So what happened is I was doing a lot of this stuff. And then Larry, the guy who hired me, sadly had a heart attack mm -hmm. and died over spring break. Uh -huh. So we needed someone to teach a full load with three days notice. And I had a new neighbor whose name was Jeffrey Beatty, and we had bonded over the fact that we had daughters the same age who had names that rhymed. So my daughter's name was Maisie and his was Daisy. Oh. 
And even more, both of those names appear in the title of Henry James novels. So what Maisie knew and Daisy Miller. So we've become friendly acquaintances. And he was a lawyer who had gone part-time at his firm, so he would have time to write movie and TV screenplays, Mm. which was his real love. Mm -hmm. So I remember this so well. I went over to his house and knocked on his door and said, Jeffrey, would you like to teach on Monday? (laughs) And he had never taught before, but he was super articulate and charismatic and funny. And I just knew he could do a good job. And so he came to work for us. He was a huge success and a great addition to the school. And then about that time, I had published a book on law firm management. And In one of those random life events, someone from another school called me and asked if I would revise a few chapters of an existing business law textbook. And I enjoyed that so much, and the publisher liked what I had done so much that I decided I would write my own textbook. And I went to my publisher who had published my book already, and he agreed that that was a good idea. So I asked Jeffrey if he would like to be part of this project, and he agreed. And when I look back at my professional life, that's what I'm the proudest of and has had the biggest impact because, you know, it's, it's a book that is used nationwide. Um, and I'm now in the process of revising the ninth edition. What's the name of this book? It's just called Business Law uh-huh. by Beatty Samuelson. But Good. that led to, so what happened to the book though, to illustrate, I think the point you've made before about the importance of chance encounters, and especially in my life, they've been important. Our publisher was Little Brown, which is one of the premier textbook publishers. It's a big division of Hachette now, right? Well, they had just been, just as, as we were finishing our book, they got acquired by Time Warner. Right. And Time Warner was not interested in college text, which is what our book was. So our book became an orphan with no publisher. And that was pretty traumatic after we just spent a year and a half writing it. But I went to a random regional law conference in upstate New York. And while there, I went out to dinner one night with a group of faculty that included an editor. And he had turned down our book because he had asked one of his author who had a competing book, what he thought of our book. And that author said, oh, it's terrible. Don't buy it. But having met me, the publisher decided he would go back and look at the books. And he went back and looked at them and loved it. So he bought our book. I cannot get over that course of events. I I mean, I I certainly, Little Brown, one of the premier publishing houses and. Yes, now I remember Warner Books bought them, but and then Hachette brought Warner Books. So, <laughs> but and yeah. just the fact that I had done my first book with Little Brown was yes. really helpful in getting tenure because it's a prestigious name. Um, so while we were working on these books, we began the process of building up the law area, and we started offering besides just the intro course, we offered more courses, law became a required course in both the undergraduate and graduate programs. It became an undergraduate major. And essentially, my whole strategy always was just to be under the radar screen. We did really good work, students were very happy, and no one paid any attention to us. And by avoiding notice, we also avoided supervision. Mm. But we needed more faculty. And it turned out that a great source was P. 
people, sometimes women, but not always women, who were trained at large law firms, but just couldn't hack the law firm life, especially with young children. Mm -hmm. And these folks turned out to be just great colleagues and great teachers. And it was a win-win for everyone, except, of course, for the law firms who trained them and then lost them. Mm -hmm. But I'll give you an example of one person I hired. I was on the fundraising committee at my church, and it's a large landmark church in Boston. And we had a $50 million goal, the most money ever raised by an Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. So we weren't allowed to just call people to ask them. We had to go make an appointment to go have lunch with them, to see them in person. So I called up someone who was practicing law at a big firm, and she agreed to have lunch. And she asked, could she bring her friend who had always wanted to teach? Well, the upshot was she never gave a dime to the uh, <laughs> church campaign, but I met her friend uh, who became and hired her, and she became one of my most valuable colleagues. And some years later, she won a major teaching award that came with a cash prize, and she made a donation back to the church in my honor. Oh, I love that. That's how we'd met. Wow. So everyone we hired started out teaching a few courses for us. And if they were good, we'd hire them full time. And I mean, some people didn't work out. We had a guy who had been on law review at Harvard, and but he couldn't teach. And he actually ended up going back to the firm that I had been at and being very successful there. So it all worked out. So Susan, where did some of these people end up longer term? So no one else in the law department went on to tenure track. At the beginning, that was largely their choice. I mean, tenure track is tough, and they didn't want the pressure. They didn't want to do research. Then some years ago, when Bob Brown became president at BU, he had been provost at MIT, he began to systemize processes, which made getting tenure very difficult for everyone. So the law area ended up with five full-time people, including me, and then lots of adjuncts, part-time people. Mm -hmm. But the law faculty had an impact throughout the school. I was the faculty director of the executive MBA program for a dozen years, but other people in the law area developed the ethics curriculum. They developed and taught with great success the required freshman business course. They played lots of leadership roles, co-head of an institute, head of the academic conduct committee, the diversity committee, et cetera, et cetera. In many ways, the law faculty became the backbone of the faculty in terms of dealing with students. Wow. That, that is really quite amazing. And you think about the origin where you're saying you hired people who for one reason or another, law firm life was not compatible with, with the, their other uh, goals or their other life situations and ended up with amazing people who became the backbone of the, of the Boston University Law Department and beyond. Yes. Very, very impressive and interesting. So looking back, you, you know, you, you've had this multi-decade career in academia, and I'm wondering, retrospectively, any thoughts about whether you would have done anything differently? You know, you talked about how much of a planner you are, and I'm just so struck again and again about the element of chance. First, of you getting your teaching role, the chance of, the element of chance of you knocking on the door of your neighbor and having 
him come in and also be a co-author with you on, on important textbooks. And then a chance came into play again when you had the change of publisher. So I'm so interested in your thoughts on, as a planner, on the role of chance in your life's events and your career path. Oh, clearly when I look back, uh, random events have been huge. I guess what I would say is that that's absolutely true, but I took advantage of them as well. Yes. And in the academic world, it's, at least at Boston University, it's very entrepreneurial in the sense that no one impedes you. If you want to do something, people pretty much stay out of your way and let you do it, but you also don't get a huge amount of support either. Like when I did research, I raised the research funds myself. I went to Harvard Business Review and they funded my first research project, for example. And I've seen lots of junior faculty come through who just aren't able to publish and don't take advantage of the situation for whatever reason. So, but absolutely, luck has been important and hard work has been important and whatever abilities I have have also been important. And you're writing a textbook. I look back at my teachers in high school who taught me how to write and who knew that that would be so important in my life. Right. So Susan, this has been a wonderful conversation and we're running out of time now. So I wanted to go to our final question and it's the question we asked all of our podcast guests. And that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? Well, other than having lots of meals with random strangers, um, it it, it was a really hard decision to leave my law firm. It was a prestigious, high-paying job working with smart people I liked. It was what I think of as a great cocktail party job. People at cocktail parties were impressed when I told them where I worked. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, actually, it was an impressive. My parents liked telling people at cocktail parties where their daughter worked. But ultimately, it just wasn't the right job for me. And I decided I shouldn't be doing something just to impress other people, as much fun as that was. Mm -hmm. So my advice would be to figure out what works for you and then to take the risk and work hard to achieve it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is so important. And, you know, in our relauncher audience, sometimes people don't step back and reflect and figure that out until they are on their career break and well into it and realize that they were maybe fulfilling someone else's expectations along the way or somehow fell into something without a lot of thinking behind it that turned out to be the wrong path. So I'm thinking now back to the beginning of our conversation where you said originally you always wanted to teach, but then you felt like somehow that that wasn't going to be your destiny because you know you didn't make Harvard Law Review and and at the end of the day look where you ended up yes very ironic and I have loved my life at BU I love teaching I love writing I love getting emails from former students telling me what an impact I've had in their lives Mm. I love being part of an academic community so all good yes well thanks for joining us today Susan you're very welcome And thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I Relaunch and your host. 
For more information on our relaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to irelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us. 